Australia in the World is a podcast produced with the support of the Australian Institute of International Affairs. The AAA wants Australians to know, understand and engage more in international affairs. All views expressed are solely those of the speakers themselves. Hello and welcome back to the Australia in the World podcast. As always, you're with Darren Lim from the School of Politics and International Relations at the Australian National University and Alan Gingell, National President of the Australian Institute of International Affairs. Hi, Alan. Hi, Darren. Well, it seems pretty clear that we are at the beginning of what will be a defining period of modern history brought about by the novel coronavirus COVID-19. But how is it going to play out? It's really not possible to have any certainty about what is going to happen in the short, medium or long term. But having said that, on this podcast, we believe that there is some merit in talking about possible futures for the purpose of at least beginning to reorient our analytical framing of the world and what changes into the future may mean for Australia's place in it. So that's our plan for this evening, Thursday the 26th of March. But be kind, dear listeners, to the extent that you hear any predictions today, we fully expect many of them to be wrong. So let's get into it. Now, the overarching question, of course, is how do we think the world will look different after the worst of the crisis is over? And then second, how can Australia position itself for that new world? Let's focus on the first question and break it up into a couple of different parts. We'll begin with the global balance of power. Alan, what do you make of the argument that while many countries may be angry at how Chinese authorities mishandled the early stages of the outbreak, China is going to emerge as the big winner in a post-COVID-19 world at the expense of the United States and probably also the EU? The Chinese system, with its rigid control of information and the, the fear that you saw on the part of local officials to deliver bad news up the line, obviously impeded the initial handling of the outbreak. But then the same system was able to marshal the resources, as we discussed last time, to, to move quickly and effectively into the sort of lockdown that we're now seeing in uh, in other countries like India. By any measure, you'd have to say, I think that the Chinese did a good job with this control phase and they're now beginning to try and reopen and meanwhile offering other countries helpful hints on the benefits of their experience. But we do still have to see what happens. China may well have further problems. It's hard to acknowledge this, I think, but we are still in the early days of what's going on. And we know that the virus can mutate and that pandemics can return in waves. So it's too early for final judgments and therefore to tell how the world exactly will be different. But I think the judgments uh, we're going to make in the end will be more about capability than about systems. It seems to me that the battle is between the competent and the incompetent. So you've got sort of Singapore and Seoul falling into the competent camp and the Trump administration so far into the incompetent. There's no doubt that whether they are authoritarian or democratic, the states that do manage to address the health and social problems of the pandemic most effectively and to get their economies moving faster when the crisis passes are going to have a head start in the new world. How do you think about it, Darren? Well, I start by separating the material impacts in terms of public health and the economy 
from the political consequences of those impacts. Now, it's very hard to predict the material impact. You know, will this cause a medium-strength recession or will it perhaps utterly devastate the world economy and the US economy in particular, causing a multi-year depression, perhaps in a way that makes the US weaker in a relative sense than everyone else? Or could America drag other countries down with it? But if we put material impacts to one side, my hot take on the politics of this is that it doesn't really matter how badly the Trump administration does if, and it is a big if, Joe Biden wins in November. Because if Biden wins, I think that the Western world and parts of the developing world will, in many senses, forgive the United States and be willing to accept U.S. leadership again. Why? I think because so much of the world wants U.S. leadership. They're crying out for it. And I'm talking about those actors who are less comfortable with the Chinese model of leadership or, for whatever reason, see China as more of a threat to their national interests than a quote-unquote normal United States. Now, I'm not saying things will go back to the way they were. You know, the days of U.S. hegemony from the 1990s are past. But I do remember the sharp spike in positive perceptions and favorability of the United States that occasioned Obama's election following George W. Bush, and I think that kind of phenomenon could happen again. As for China, as you said, Alan, the material impact is, is still an unknown, because of course, on one hand, you have things beginning to start up again. I saw that the Hubei province is opening up and that Wuhan, the city of Wuhan itself, is going to open up in the next few weeks. But on the other hand, you have the risk of new waves of the virus, and you also have the structural fragilities in the Chinese economy, in particular mountains of debt that will eventually come home to roost. So I think materially, it could play out either way. Politically, I think there's no doubt that China is looking very good because of the bilateral assistance it is starting to provide towards other countries, and that that is balancing, if not outweighing, some of the controversies from earlier in the outbreak. But I think also that benefit is being undermined by some of the propaganda messages being sent out. So this brings me to my next question, Alan. In a speech to Parliament on Monday the 23rd of March, earlier this week, Prime Minister Scott Morrison said, quote, There are some who believe liberal democracies and free societies cannot cope with these sorts of challenges. We will prove them wrong here in Australia, end quote. Now, Alan, we talked in our last episode about the potential efficacy of authoritarian approaches to dealing with pandemics and also referred to Labor MP Tim Watts's recent speech on democracy and the authoritarian challenge. Was it necessary for our PM to use those words? And do you accept that there is a battle of narratives or even a clash of systems going on? Well, I'm, I'm a bit sort of, uh, of a sceptic about battles of narratives in all this, why is this the frame through which we look at a global pandemic? I see a continuum in which governments from Beijing to Madrid are fighting a terrible disease as best they can with the resources they can muster. We're all doing what we can with what we've got, and we're all becoming more directive by the day. Uh, the restrictions on Australians we're now seeing are unprecedented in my life. I have to say, I think the PM was setting up a bit of a straw man here. I don't actually think there are many people who think liberal democracies and free societies are unable to cope with challenges like this. We managed the Second World War quite successfully. And in some 
dimensions, certainly, like locking people in quarantine. It's harder for democracies to do that and takes a bit longer. But Rottnest Island shows that we can eventually land there. Uh, and on the other side of it, the active debate about the government's response, the rapid transfer of information, all of these are advantages for free society. So I'd leave the uh, battle of narratives to one side for more important issues on the table. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, look, I hope every system succeeds because I hope every country succeeds, whether that is Australia or China, the US, Europe or anywhere else in the world. But having said that, if coming out of all this, the Chinese system or the authoritarian model does appear to correlate more with capability, as you described earlier, if it appears more successful than those of many of the major democracies, I am a bit worried, especially if the US makes a complete mess of their response and is still dealing with this months after everyone else has moved on. I do think that would set back the cause of democracy in one sense, and that would not be a good thing. Would-be authoritarians could use the COVID-19 episode as, if nothing else, a kind of rhetorical heuristic to undermine or attack the case for democracy. And so what I'm grappling with is how much of a risk is this and, and how could a country like Australia counter such arguments? And that's, of course, before we get to conspiracy theories that the virus originated in the US or in Italy or somewhere like that, which have been propagated by some parts of the Chinese system, albeit definitely not all. A side point, I was chatting with a friend recently who pointed out uh, that the Asian financial crisis of the late 1990s had helped consolidate trends towards democracy across Asia, and they pointed out Indonesia and the Philippines as the prime examples. And my friend wondered whether this event might also consolidate trends, but in the other direction towards authoritarianism. Anyway, let's next on my list of possible futures, Alan, is our old dear friend, the rules-based order which unfortunately is right in the high-risk group for COVID-19, mid-70s in age, underlying health problems. Is there a silver lining here or is all the news grim? That's such a great image, uh, Darren, the poor old RBO propped up in the nursing home and unable to receive mm. visitors. Look, if you can see a silver lining in this crisis for the rules-based order, it may be that it will finally cause us, by which I mean... I guess, the international community collectively to start thinking about what multilateralism has to look like in the mid-21st century. It has to be universal in membership and has to be a system in which all voices can be heard, but it also needs to be one which can't be constrained by the straitjacket of consensus, as we've seen with the WTO and its uh, problems. Maybe it has to be more virtual than the large bureaucracies mm. which were necessary when the model was established in the late 1940s. But we do need rules. There's always an order and there have to be uh, rules because without them, raw power dominates outcomes. And for a country like Australia, which is large enough to have global interests but unable to get what we want through coercion or bribery, agreed rules which we've played a part in the setting are always going to be central to our ability to prosper in the world. Mm. So maybe we can see the beginning of what's necessary, which is a new formulation of multilateralism. Look, I am persuaded, Alan, and I think you and I certainly, and I, I assume all of the listeners to our podcast can see the beginning of that need, but I, I can't help but add to the dour mood of this of time 
international cooperation requires public support to be sustained. And so the question is not so much whether we see it, but whether the broader public sees it and not just accepts it, but is also willing to make sacrifices for the long-term good. And so this brings me to the question of climate change, where we are asking, or the challenge is asking the peoples of the world to sacrifice their standard of living to save the world, the, the world of their children from future catastrophe. Yet if we link that to this crisis, think of the packed beaches from the past week, whether at Bondi Beach in Sydney or in South Florida, and you see large and probably politically irrelevant swathes of our population who are unwilling to forego their lifestyle, let alone voluntarily choose to pay steep costs to help fix a problem like the virus, which is just around the corner. And so I'm more pessimistic. How could you ever expect those same people to make sacrifices for climate change? Anyway, let me stay with the theme of domestic political forces for a moment and ask you about sovereignty, Alan. We have talked about the emergence of sovereignty in the language of Australian foreign policy a few times on this podcast, especially over the past year. How do you see the particular pressures created by this crisis feeding into the trend towards a greater reassertion of sovereignty around the world? It goes both ways, doesn't it? I mean, this period is obviously a dream for those who uh, treasure sovereignty, and we've seen how quickly leaders like Modi and Netanyahu have taken advantage of the opportunities. If you're keen on sovereignty, what more could you want than what we've now got? Foreigners can't enter Australia and Australians can't leave. So sort of ultimate sovereignty. On, on the other hand, the condition which has given rise to that is also a reminder that the most difficult issues we face, including climate change as well as pandemic disease, simply can't be addressed at the national level alone. To deal with the disease and to recover, especially from the economic devastation it's caused, we're going to need international collaboration and agreement. But look, I also wanted to note that there's a difference between an emphasis on sovereignty and the growth in the power of the state. Everywhere in all systems, we've seen the role of government expanding in unprecedented ways, particularly over the economy, and that's going to take uh, years to be reversed. Yes, well, you obviously knew this is where I was going, Alan, because that for me is the most interesting element or perhaps maybe the most consequential element of this being the rise of, of states over markets. If you just consider the astonishing scale of the economic measures alone that are being used to rescue economies, it's a massive expansion in the size of government. Germany you know, has, has borrowed about 10% of its GDP. The UK is covering 80% of the salaries of the entire country, Denmark 75%. I think these kinds of policy measures, although occurring in an emergency context, will cement the structural capacity of governments to provide universal income support for individuals. And once those structures are in place, it's not hard to see more pressures for some version of them to remain over the long term, especially as a way of addressing income inequality and some populist pressures. Like income tax during the uh, war. Can you say a bit more? Oh, well, income tax was introduced by the federal government in Australia as a wartime emergency measure and stayed on ever after. So I think, think you're right. I think that elements of what we are seeing now are going to persist. I agree with you. I think back to the early democratic primary debates and the candidacy of Andrew Yang, who was sort of a young entrepreneur 
and one of his main policy platforms was a universal basic income. And he was almost alone in that. And then fast forward a few months later and you have Republicans like Mitt Romney who are calling for checks to be sent to every American. And then you have over the past few days, you know, the Senate at least passing a package uh, in Congress that will do just that. And so things have changed so quickly. And like you say with income tax, Alan, it's hard to see how that won't survive in some form into the longer term or at least create you know, the political window that such a permanent policy change could be made. A second impact, I expect, is a further broadening of the securitization phenomenon, and that's something we've obviously discussed at length on this podcast, where national security is used to justify government interventions in markets. This will begin, obviously, in the health and biotechnology sector, with pressure to nationalise or at least impose much stricter government control over health systems and related supply chains in the name of responding to pandemic risk. Governments in every rich and or big country, I would think, and I would include Australia here, will face pressure to create independent manufacturing capacity in medical and pharmaceutical supplies as a matter of national security. Moreover, I would expect this to expand outward to other sectors that are increasingly seen as critical. This is not to say that every country will want to produce everything itself, that's of course not realistic, but more just that governments will face more pressure to onshore more and more industries incrementally. So I'm not just talking about the US and China decoupling here, but many other wealthy or large countries as well. It will be expensive and inefficient, but that's what it means, I suppose, to achieve security. So while we're on this question of decoupling, Alan, do you have a response to this? And do you agree that the decoupling trend will gain further momentum? Yeah, look, I do, Darren. I disagree with everything you've said. There's no doubt uh, that the experiences we've had with the vulnerability of single supply lines for pharmaceuticals will reinforce calls for greater self-sufficiency and sort of reinforce the geostrategic pressures that were already existing for decoupling between the United States and China. And as you also alluded, there, there may be good reasons for that, but the result will be a less efficient international economy and added costs. Mm. Well, what about the practice of diplomacy, Alan? How will this crisis affect the work of our diplomats and the diplomatic efforts of our political leaders? I suspect that a lot of ways of working are going to be different when this is over. We were just talking about sort of economic interventions by governments in the economy. The same with the workforce, I think. A bit like the engagement of women in factories in the Second World War, things are not going to go back to the way they were before. The practice that we're all experiencing of remote uh, working, I think, will be normalised. Mm. Communications by video link will be more familiar. Distance learning will be improved. And when we get into the recovery period, companies and governments, which are going to need cost savings, will find some here, I think. Mm. Mm. And diplomacy, of course, won't be immune from that. We've already seen here last week, I think, Scott Morrison and Lee Sin Lung, the Singapore PM, conducting their annual leaders summit virtually. The G20 is uh, is meeting by video conference to talk mm. about the uh, coronavirus. The Afghan government and the Taliban have had Skype discussion about yeah. prisoner exchanges. Remarkable. Yeah. But on the, on the other side of it, look, you couldn't have had a better example of the need for on-the-ground presence than the outstanding work 
diplomats and consular officials have been doing since since Wuhan, really, uh, in helping Australians navigate the huge consular disruption this has caused. But look, my favourite example of the changes the coronavirus has brought was the news that someone sent me, and it seems accurate, that ISIS has told its operatives outside Europe to stay away while the crisis continues. So there's one way in which we can all be a bit more relaxed. Okay, well, let's bring this all together and focus in more on Australia. Uh, And the second sort of headline question that I wanted to ask in this podcast. What should we and and the Australian government be doing to plan for a post-COVID-19 world? I think the implications of the pandemic for Australia are basically negative. Economically, uh, the pattern of our trade relationship with China has probably changed irrevocably because the structure of the Chinese economy will be Mm. different coming out of this. It'll remain important, but the easy days are over and we'll have to work much harder. As we've already discussed, the international institutions of greatest importance to us, including uh, WTO, WHO, the G20, will be weaker. Regionalism, which has always been one of the mainstays of Australia's foreign policy, has been damaged. You'd have to say, I think, that both both ASEAN and the EU have Mm. suffered from the reassertion of sovereignty. And in addition to the health dangers, it's quite possible that the next shoe to drop will be a financial shock. I've just, sorry, just realised that that's a terrible mixed metaphor. <laughs> but anyway, my, my point is financial shocks are likely. The countries most vulnerable to them include the main pillars of Australia's Indo-Pacific strategy, including Indonesia and India. And finally, and you've talked about this already, the US looks irrevocably weakened as a global leader, and perhaps not irrevocably if there's a change at the presidential election in November. But it's hard to think of a global crisis. Well, I can't think of a global crisis over the past 50 years to which Washington has offered the international community so little response. So all of that, I think, is sort of shaping up as negative news. What should we do? Well, part of our plan should be to find our own voice clear and consistent in uh, Washington and Beijing as we attempt to avert the worst consequences of their deteriorating relationship. And we need to use that voice unless we can find ways to engage effectively in high-level discussions with Beijing as well as Washington. We're going to be crippled and an important part of our recovery in this disaster. Uh, remember, we, we talked about this on the podcast, that, that comprehensive audit of global institutions and rulemaking processes where we have the greatest stake that the PM asked for back in October as part of his critique of globalism, remember that? Well, I reckon he should ask the Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade to urgently repurpose that and use it in collaboration with other middle powers to identify ways in which we can rebuild the authority and usefulness of the key multilateral organisations when this is over, just as Simon Birmingham has been trying to do with the WTO and its appeal system. I think we need to be thinking now about how we can help our neighbours through that financial crisis that we were, we were talking about. 
In the late 1990s, the Asian financial crisis, which, as your friend was saying, had such a transformative political impact in the region. At that stage, Australia had the resources to help our neighbours directly. But after all this and the sort of the, the government's rescue packages, it's not at all clear that we'll be able to do that this time around. So as Adam Triggs from the ANU has suggested, we need to be encouraging the IMF, G20, the US to be preparing for a planned response to this, including loans and currency swap lines. And and look, finally, I think we should be taking a lead role. Um, we could do this maybe by commissioning some early work from academic, medical and economic researchers in calling for international reviews of the experiences of this pandemic and the lessons learned including on information sharing and keeping medical equipment and pharmaceuticals flowing, because we do need to prepare for the next crisis, because there will be one, a slight genetic change mm. in the high mortality H5N1 bird flu virus, making it more transmis transmissible to humans, would remain an even more um, dangerous pandemic in waiting for us. So w we do need to... Uh, make use of this crisis. So what about you? What do you, do you think we should be doing? Well, they're all great practical suggestions, Alan. And as true to form as an academic, I don't really have any practical suggestions because I can't help but focus on the politics <laughs> of this and the rhetoric. Because in terms of rhetorical narrative, I don't think the Prime Minister needs to change very much. This is the kind of event that in my view, makes his Lowy speech that you referred to earlier from October of last year, which was titled In Our Interest, and we debated vigorously back in episode 31, it makes uh, that speech to me seem more prescient. Yeah, my prediction is that yeah, this event will shift the preferences of publics around the world further towards closure, certainly in terms of migration and the movement of people. Yeah, you mentioned earlier this was sort of a dream for the sovereignty-focused leaders of the world. And when you were saying that, I thought of a tweet from Trump that I saw a few days ago where he just said in all caps, this is why we need borders. <laughs> you know, it's just it's not hard to link the two. And it's not a sophisticated or even a correct argument. But nevertheless, it's the kind of rhetorical flourish that could resonate politically. And I worry that it's not just going to be in areas of migration and, and people movement, but it could spill into other domains. And so, you know, the PM's developing record of, of an emphasis on sovereignty and the recognition that there are elements of globalization that have gone too far, that are not working for many peoples and governments around the world is a good one. And it's likely to become even more true now and that it provides a political and maybe even sort of a diplomatic template not just for convincing his own sceptical public, us, the Australian public, but also with engaging with sceptical foreign leaders. Yes, that means less cooperation overall, and it means a focus on cooperation that yields tangible, practical, politically identifiable benefits. But I think that's the world we currently live in. Now, the big question is, of course, can this type of rhetorical emphasis sit alongside the very useful practical steps you outline. To me, that's the great challenge for government. Can we preserve as much of the functional aspects of the order or repurpose them to keep their functionality, but talk about them, describe them with a new language and a new rhetorical emphasis? That's the line I think we have to walk. 
Now, there may be less room for values in this kind of foreign policy. You know, I worry that the shock of this kind of event may cause many countries, and I include even Australia here, to do things that range from disappointing to downright awful as they relate to our values. But the tide, the political tide, may be difficult for a country like Australia to resist in the short term. In terms of policy, yeah, I don't have much to add on what you said, Alan. I mean, I think like everyone else in the world, we will need to rethink our supply chains. There is a category of goods that have been shown to be essential, and we may need to create our own domestic manufacturing capacity, which will, as you pointed out, be inefficient and expensive, Alan. But we are a wealthy country. We can afford it. And I suspect the national security arguments will push us there. And I think just more generally, more of us need to learn more about what supply chains actually look like. Calls to diversify away from China are almost a cliche here, especially in the higher education sector. But this is much broader than just China. It's understanding how everything is connected, where everything comes from, and what goods really matter when you have these kinds of external shocks and what is most at risk and building resilience into the system in, in response. Now, I don't know what that looks like, but it's something that I'm planning on looking into, uh, at least once all this is over and I have more time on my hands. Anyway, we'll wrap up there, Alan, and, and just quickly do our final segment, reading, listening, and watching. Do you have something to distract us? Yeah, look, if you're in lockdown and you need to be somewhere else, at least in your own mind right now, I recommend The Mirror and the Light, which is the final volume of Hilary Mantel's brilliant trilogy about the life of Thomas Cromwell, who rose from being son of a blacksmith to dominate Tudor England as chief minister to uh, Henry VIII. When the first book in this series, Wolf Hall, came out in 2009, I wrote on the Lowy Interpreter that it was the best book I'd ever read about politics, not Tudor politics, but politics full stop. If any of our younger listeners aspire to work in Parliament House, you won't find anywhere a better evocation of the talents required by a political staffer than Cromwell in his relationship with Henry. So it's a go-to book for those purposes. For those of us who believe in the work of public service, I can't think of many bureaucratic heroes in literature. I mean, maybe maybe George Smiley in Le Carre's work. <laughs> uh, but Thomas Cromwell, flawed as he is, is one of them. And like Smiley, he's also a superb intelligence manager and, and assessor. The Mirror and the Light brings Cromwell's story to its final tragic close and delivers us one of the, in my view anyway, one of the great triumphs of contemporary fiction. And if Mantell doesn't get her third Booker Prize for this, she's been robbed. Hmm. Well, listeners, if you don't want to take your mind somewhere else but want to lean into the crisis, can I make an unusual recommendation, which is Twitter. Coronavirus drama has shown to me again how thoroughly useful Twitter can be, and this is despite all the trolls and this disinformation out there. And I'm talking here specifically about getting access to the thinking of epidemiologists and other health experts. They're the ones who know about this stuff. They know where to look for the data. And then we, as regular users of Twitter, get the benefit of their interpretations, their translations, and their analysis in real time. And there are two functions in particular that I want to recommend. One is Twitter search, which the economist Tyler Cohen has, has said is actually better than Google when you're trying to get up-to-date information in circumstances like these, and I agree with him. And the second function is lists, where you can create 
a feed of specifically designated Twitterati. And so you could create a list of just epidemiologists and, and, and just follow that information in real time. Now, if you don't know who to put on your own COVID-19 list, well, there are a number that have already been created by others out there and you can just subscribe to those. So it's a really effective way of getting the news, I think. So again, you could either take your mind out to out of here to Hillary Mantel and the era of Henry VIII, or you could spend your time in depressing news about coronavirus, uh, as I have been doing. So I guess that says a lot about me over the past few weeks. Although I will say there has been some positive news inching out on the crisis over the past sort of 48 hours. So you cling to those new data points um, as a way of, of trying to get some optimism into your daily, into your daily existence. Uh, I'm, cl- I'm clinging with you, Darren. <laughs> well, that's all for today's episode of Australia in the World. We want to thank our new AAA intern, Maddie Gordon, for her help with research and audio editing. XC Chong and Isabel Hancock for research support and Rory Stenning for composing our theme music. We'll talk to you again soon.